this morning. We will find ourselves still in the Gospel of John at, towards the end of the 11th chapter. Last week we heard that incredible story of, of the resurrection of, of Lazarus. Right now, now following up on that story, you know, Jesus or Lazarus has just come out of the tomb, and if I had my way, there's a bunch of questions I would like answered. Right, Lazarus, what was that like? You know, we we would we would love to have all these kind of things answered, but of course, that's not the point of the gospel before us to give us all the answers to the questions we might wish we could have. The the the, the intention here is different. What is is the intention? Well, it is of course for us to see the response. What is the response to this most incredible so far of of Jesus' signs, of of His his miracles? Let's look now. Let's, Let's read about the response. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, "'What are we to do for this man performs many signs?' If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and they will take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather in to one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior. We pray you would feed us this day through your word. Oh, Father, convict us of our sin where we need to be convicted and point us to the incredible wonder of what Jesus has done so that we might have life. We pray this in his name. Amen. We we see it all the time in our world and our, our culture today, and in fact, it's not really any different than it has been for years and has been always. We, we, we see two different groups of people or, or two different people looking at the exact same thing, the exact same facts, hearing the exact same thing, and what ends up happening? They come to completely polar and opposite conclusions, right? We see it all the time. We, we see it in our political world today. Everybody looking at the same thing, but just polar opposites as they try to approach things. Well, we have something of that going on in our passage this morning. This, this polar opposite thing is, is not a new thing, and people seeing the same thing in different ways, it's not a new thing. We've seen throughout the gospel so far, uh, Jesus has done all of these incredible signs, right? One after another after another, and now before us we have this most incredible of His miracles so far, bringing Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Some of the previous signs. You know, maybe some people could have explained away. This one, there's no explaining away. Lazarus was in the tomb, and he was stinking, to put it mildly. And yet now, what is he doing? He's walking around. There's evidence walking around of what Jesus has done. And we would think after something like that, the the, the reaction, the response would seem obvious to us, wouldn't it? Well, 
we'll see that all don't respond in the way that we would think. Now, now some do maybe respond in the way that we would think. Verse 45, many of them, what? Many of the Jews, what? They believed. They, they, They believed in Him. They believed in Jesus. Now, this may or may not be saving faith. They, they, they may not understand completely who Jesus is at this point, that he came to save them, but, but they are believing him. They're believing that there's something incredible about this man, and they begin to put their faith in him. Maybe he really is. He really is the Messiah. That's what some people see as they see this incredible resurrection of Lazarus. But that's not what all see. They see the same thing, but what do some others do? Verse 46 Some of them went to the Pharisees, and they told them what Jesus had done. Now, maybe for a moment we could say, maybe this is positive. Maybe they're going to tell the Pharisees to try to convince them. But I don't think that's what's going on here at all. John kind of sets it up for us, right? This is meant to be a contrast with those in the previous verse who believed in him. Now we have these others that are what? What? They're going, and they're going, and they're taking this news to the religious leaders, and they're just not taking it to any religious leaders, are they? They they take it to the Pharisees. They know who to go to. Now, I'm sure this isn't the case for any of the kids in here, but I've heard that there's some kids out there who, who will intentionally go to one parent over another parent because they think one parent might respond to them in a different way than the other parent is. Well, so, so what do they do? They go to the parent that they think they have the best chance of getting the response that they want. Can you believe that that happens? My guess is maybe we have something similar going on here. They, they, they know what to do, don't they? They know who to go to. They know to go to the Pharisees. They know how to stir the pot. Now, I know we don't have any kids like this in here either, but I hear that there are some kids who they have siblings, and they know just the right buttons to press, right? They know just the right things to say to, to set the others off. These people, they go to the right people, and they know how to press the right buttons. They know how to stir the pot, and the pot gets stirred, and that's precisely what we see happening here, right? What do the Pharisees do? They, they take it to the council. They take it to this Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin that day, this is the, the supreme council of the, the, the Jewish people. They were allowed in, in, during the Roman Empire, the, the Jews were allowed a lot of auto- autonomy in their area. They were allowed to make a lot of decisions for themselves. They, of all people, they, they actually didn't have to worship Caesar as God. They were allowed to take up temple taxes. There were certain special dispensations for the Jewish people. And so they were able to rule themselves to this group of mainly priests and Sadducees would, would make the decisions largely for the Jewish people. Now, they, along with, with these Pharisees that come and talk to them, um, they don't usually all get along. But on this day, they have a common problem. They have a common issue, a common issue that we've actually been seeing already show up in the Gospel of John. We see it in verse 47, and as they ask the question, what are we to do? Nothing we've done up to this point worked. The problem is still around. This man he who must not be named. It's like they can't even say his name, right? He's been performing all of these signs, and now he's, this, this man has, been, has come out of the tomb. What are we to do? How are we to stop this down? This has gotten out of hand, all these signs, all these miracles. You notice what they don't do. They don't deny any of them, do they? 
that they seem to accept these miracles as genuine. They're dealing with the same set of facts as those who believe in Jesus, right? But boy, are they taking a completely different tact with them, aren't they? Looking at the same thing. Yet the religious leaders, it doesn't lead them to faith in Jesus, does it? You see, seeing is, is not believing. Sometimes we tend to think in our world that, oh, if I can just argue with a person, if I can just lay out the facts before them, then they'll have to agree with me, right? How many times have you found yourself in that argument? We think of it in, you know, I already mentioned it in our, our, our polarized political landscape today. We think, oh, if I can just lay out my facts before you, you're going to agree with me, right? How has that worked out for you? And we see it here in our passage playing out in the arena not of politics, but in the arena of faith, right? And maybe you've struggled with a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, who you so want to know Jesus. And, and you think, maybe if I could just come up with the right arguments, if I could come up with the, the, the right details, if I, if I could lay the right case before them, then they would have to believe, right? What are we reminded of this morning? That's not how humans work, really. It's not, I want us to see, and we see it in this passage, it's not the facts that keep people from believing, is it? There's other very deep motivating factors that are going on. Other deep motivating factors that, that have people just bumping up against one another. And we see it in the religious leaders, don't we? What is their motivating factor? Let's, let's look at it. Verse 48, what, what do they say? If we let this continue, what's going to happen? Everyone will believe in him. Now, just think about that for a moment. Well, what would be so bad about that? What would be so bad about if everybody believes with Jesus and nobody stops to ask, maybe we should believe in him? That's not even a question for them, right? They don't even want to think that. They don't want to even ponder that. What is it that they're concerned about? Their concern seems to be that, that if they allow this to continue, it's going to stir up this messianic hysteria, if you will, all of these people excited about a potential Messiah. And if we let that happen, what's going to happen? Rome's going to come in. And what do they say? What are they going to do? They're going to take away both what? Our place and our nation. What is the place? Likely the temple, right? Our nation. Remember this power that the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders hold. If, if, if we allow this to happen, we're going to lose our control of the temple. We're going to lose the control that we have here. We're going to lose our power. You see how the way they played it. We're, we're going to lose our place, our nation. You see, I think people often don't believe, not because they don't have the right facts before them, but because their concern is really for their place and for their nation, if you will. You see, seeing is not believing. Because if we're really honest, we're really just concerned for ourselves so often, aren't we? And maybe you're here this morning somewhat skeptical of this whole Christian thing, this whole church thing. Maybe you don't know if you really want to believe in this or not. And maybe you're, you come here and you're, you're here because, well, you like some of the people here. Your spouse is dragging, your parents are dragging you, whatever it may be. 
And maybe as you sit here, you want, well, what I really need is I need some better arguments. You've got to convince me. You've got to convince me that what you're saying is really true, that, that, that Jesus is really God, that he really did die for our sins. You've got to convince me. You've got you to prove it to me. But I think maybe what we're seeing this morning is that that may not be at all what's keeping you from believing. Can we pull away maybe some of the veneer for a moment? Can we call things what they are? It may be, is it that you're refusing to believe because of your own selfishness? Maybe the reality of why people don't believe, maybe the reality of why you struggle to believe is because you know that it'll mean dethroning yourself. You know that it'll be mean enthroning Christ. It means you're going to have to give up control. That you can't just pursue every one of your whims. You can't just do what you want. You, maybe some of those sins that you kind of cherish, you, you know, will have to fade away. Is the real reason people don't believe. Maybe the real reason some in here are struggling to believe is because really, you know, at its heart, it means dethroning yourself. That it's not going to be all about you anymore. You see, we, we, we must understand that unbelief, it comes from hard hearts that are ultimately consumed with self. Now, we need to understand, for, for believers in here, this passage has much to say to us too. We, we too can look a whole lot like these religious leaders, can't we? Doing everything we can to try to protect ourselves try to protect our self-interests. And yet, what does Jesus come to do? He comes to, to dethrone those self-interests, doesn't he? To dethrone ourselves, to enthrone him. And, and what we need to do as believers, we, we should be asking him, God, Jesus, w- w- would you please continue to do that work in me? Asking, maybe even pleading with him to do that work in us of dethroning ourselves and enthroning him. Now, now we don't like that in a way, right? Because we like to be the masters of our own destiny, right? We like to be the ones who can also decide what is right and wrong. We, we like to have the truth laid out before us, and we can decide what is really true. Oh, how we love that. But we're called to submit ourselves to him and to his word. We must give up that constant desire to rule ourselves and to rule with selfish motives. We must be careful because I think all too quickly we can become like Lord Farquaad. You like that transition? (laughs) Hmm. Anyway, um, Lord Farquaad, many of you remember him from Shrek, right, the little guy? He thought much of himself. He was a single guy, and what did he want? He wanted Princess Fiona, right? Problem, Princess Fiona, she's in the castle and guarded by a dragon, and he's too much of a scaredy cat to go get her, right? So what does he do? He develops this great plot where he he gathers all the knights together in his kingdom, and they're going to battle it out to see who gets to go go get Princess Fiona for him. And he gives them a, a great inspirational speech right as they're about to begin. This is what he says. 
And by the way, I'm borrowing this from another pastor, so I can't claim credit for this. But anyway, brave knights, you are the best and the brightest in all the land. Today, one of you shall prove himself. The champion shall have the honor, no, no, the privilege, to go forth and rescue the lovely Princess Fiona from the fiery keep of the dragon. And if for any reason the winner is unsuccessful, the first runner-up will take his place, and so on and so forth. Some of you will die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. (laughs) Basically, what is he saying? Your hopes, your dreams, your desire, your ambitions, your good name, and if necessary, your life are worth sacrificing in order to protect my agenda. And I will use my power and the authority of my office to ensure that that happens. Some of you will die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. The ends justify the means. Back to our religious leaders. They're standing there, and they're, they're confused. They don't know what to do. And in steps the Lord Farquaad of our story. <laughs> the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, he was a good politician. He must have been a pretty good politician. He held that office, we, from the best we can tell, for probably 18 years. He had to be pretty shrewd in order to do that. And he steps in, and what is he saying? Maybe it's just me, but he sure sounds like a whole lot like Lord Farquaad. But anyway, he, he says this, You know nothing at all, <laughs> nor do you understand You know, this group, they've been around trying to figure this out. They don't know what to do. They know that their idol has been threatened, right? And they want to protect it. They want to protect themselves and their power. They don't know how to do it. And what does Caiaphas do? He steps in. What does he basically say? You idiots. You bunch of know-nothings. Now, if you hear that, like, and the way he says it is, Kind of like, this isn't the first time he said these same things to these same people. It's like, yet again, he's having to straighten them out. Let me just tell you what we need to do. Verse 50. What does he say? It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, we're going to come back to the irony of that statement in just a moment. But what is Caiaphas meaning here? He meant it's better for one to die than for all of us, right? So what is he saying? He's saying, let's kill him. Let's kill Jesus. Problem solved. Our place, our nation will be protected. It's all we need to do. And Caiaphas knows how to talk to him, doesn't he? Do you see what he says? What is he, how, how, does he, how does he woo them? What does he say? It is better for you. He doesn't say it's better for Israel. He doesn't say it's better for our nation, for our people. It's better for you. He knows how to whisper sweet nothings into their ear, doesn't he? Appealing to their vanity, their selfishness. In the process, what is he doing? He's making this argument of the greater good, right? An argument that unfortunately we we all too often hear in our world today and unfortunately we hear at times even within the walls of the church. And the argument goes like this, that somehow, that, that the ends somehow justify the means. 
That it's okay to do this, even if it's wrong. But, and we can do that because, well, look at the product. Look, look at what's going to come of it. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever been a party to that? No doubt you and I have in some way or another. And understand, whenever we do that, understand what we're really saying. We're saying some of you will have to die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Now, that may sound harsh, but it is harsh because what we're doing is harsh. We must understand that it is never right to do the wrong thing. It is always the right time to do the right thing. But oh, how our hearts so quickly and easily get deceived, don't they? Matthew Henry puts it this way. Many will go on very securely and doing an evil thing as long as they have something to say in excuse for it. And isn't that so often us, making excuses for our sins, looking for ways to justify our sins? How many times have you and I said, but they, but he, but she, and what do we try to do? We try to justify our sins, and let's be clear, there can be no and there never is a justification for our sin. We need to call it what it is. We, we need to call it what, what Matthew Henry here calls it. We need to call it what it is. It's an evil thing. And so Caiaphas encourages the religious leaders to do what? This incredibly evil thing. Trying to persuade them with this, good, this argument that's going to be for the greater good. Well, it's really it's just for their good, right? To retain their power. pursue their selfish ambitions. But even as those words flow from his mouth, we find that it's another moment in John's gospel of incredible irony, of people saying far more than they intended or ever thought that they were saying. John helps us to understand this as he continues with a little bit of his commentary or what, on what just took place in the Sanhedrin. What does John say? He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What does John tell us here? Quite amazing when you think about it. That in some way, Caiaphas' words are God's words. Chew on that for a second. Now, what we must say here, Caiaphas says precisely what he wants to say. And what Caiaphas says is an evil thing, a crass thing. He is talking about intentionally murdering Jesus and intentionally doing so for selfish gain. Yet, what does John tell us? That through those same words, God speaks an incredible truth that the words that were meant to be so destructive and are rightfully called evil, at the same time, God, God uses words to proclaim throughout the last two centuries of the church to us this morning the incredible truth of the gospel. And what is that incredible truth? 
that Jesus would what? Die for the nation. That he would die on, on behalf of the people, just as Jesus had, had talked about in the previous chapter. He said, a good shepherd, what does a good shepherd do? A good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he goes on to say that he, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, as Chia these words are coming from Caiaphas' mouth. Caiaphas means them for political reasons, right? For political expediency, to protect his own self-interests. Yet God means them for something wonderful that, that Jesus Christ, that Jesus would substitute himself as the sacrifice for our sins. Not dying so that they can retain their political power, but dying so that you and I might have life that he would come, that he would take the wrath of God upon himself for our evil so that we might be brought into his kingdom. The Apostle Peter puts it this way, for, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. The righteous for, on behalf of the unrighteous. Oh, how incredible. It's an incredible picture of, of, of the atonement, of Jesus' death on our behalf, of Him taking our sins upon Himself. And it wouldn't just be, John wants to make clear, it wouldn't just be for the Jewish nation. It's not going to just be for the Jewish people. Is to gather in to one the children of God from the very ends of the earth. Perfectly fitting what Jesus also said in the last chapter, right? I, I, have, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, he said. And I must bring them also. Jesus didn't just come for that nation, but for the whole, whole world. Now, what we're seeing here is that, that Caiaphas thinks one thing is going on, but oh, is there something else going on? He thinks he knows what's going on. You remember what he, he tells the other religious leaders? You bunch of know-nothings. You don't know anything. You know nothing at all. But what do we learn here? What does John tell us, but in far kinder language? that Caiaphas is the real know-nothing. Caiaphas is the real know-nothing. He's not really that much different than Balaam's donkey. He, he thinks that he knows. He thinks he understands God, right? But he doesn't know. And he doesn't understand. And here in this wonderful passage, we're reminded of how God is at work in all the details of this world. He is not a clockmaker. God, maybe you've heard that before, you know, winds up the clock and just lets it go. No, he is actively involved in this world. And even here, 
as we look at this passage and we see this incredible moment of evil, God isn't absent. He's not missing in action. Right? Maybe very much likely, you know, we're all familiar with that, maybe that story of Joseph. Joseph sold by his brothers into slavery. And years later, what does he tell his brothers? As for you, you meant evil against me. Let's pause there for a second. Please hear what he says. He's not saying what you did was okay, because look at the great product and the great thing that we got out of it. What does he call what they did? He calls it evil. Rightfully so. The ends do not justify the means. You meant this for evil. You did an evil, evil act. But God. But God meant it for good. But God meant it for good. And, and the story of Joseph, it's an it's a gr- incredible example of God sovereignly at work in all things, right? Even amidst suffering and evil, he is still at work. He's not absent. He's not MIA. But there is no greater example than we get in the Gospels, is there, of God's sovereign work even amidst that. The Sanhedrin, the, the, the Pharisees, Caiaphas himself, they intend evil. But God worked it together for the good, didn't he? For the greatest good in all, in all of human history. A greater good than any of us could, could ever imagine For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Oh, what good news that is. Now, they will go through with their plot, won't they? They will go through with their evil, evil plan. They put it into place. And we see that Jesus in verse 54, what does he do? He goes back out into the wilderness. Not because he's scared, not because he's running from them, but because his time isn't yet. It's not yet time, but it is imminent. And we're going to see that as we move through the Gospel of John. Although we have a lot of John left, at the same time we're at the end of those very last days of Jesus' life. Now, what I hope we see this morning is an incredible contrast. An incredible contrast between the religious leaders, as, as especially as represented here by Caiaphas, and the words that the Apostle John brings to us this morning. Caiaphas, what does he do? He appeals to the religious leaders, just as our world appeals to us. Dive into your selfishness. It's all about you. You need to protect your place. You need to protect your kingdom. But just like Caiaphas was, just like Caiaphas was tragically mistaken, so too are we tragically mistaken if we listen to those words. If we allow those words to be entertained in our hearts, to dive into that. Let life be all about ourselves and protecting ourselves and our kingdom. But the Apostle John this morning, 
He gives us a great contrast, doesn't he? He too is appealing to you and I this morning. He's telling us of a, of a far, far better plan, isn't he? Something that is really far better for you and I. Caiaphas' plan may seem nice in the moment, but the plan which John tells us about is eternal. That Jesus Christ, that, that God Himself came, came down to earth that He might give His life as a ransom for many. That, that He died for the nation. He died for His people and to gather in all the children of God scattered to the very ends of the earth. That is good news for you and I today if we will only believe and trust in Him, in Jesus. And the question we all have to face is, are we going to continue to listen to the sweet nothings of the Caiaphases of our world, telling us it's all about you, it's all about your happiness, or are we going to this morning this day, this week, hear the call of our Savior. The call of our Savior who bids you to come. And He bids you to come because He's already given everything for you. He died so that you might have life. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess we so often live selfish and self-centered lives. We do so often live as though things are all about us. We spend far too much time trying to build up our own kingdoms. Oh, Father, <laughs> oh, would you help us to stop this nasty pursuit of ourselves? Help us to stop trying to explain our way our sins and thinking somehow we have good excuses for them. Oh, but would you help us this day to the run to the one who can make us whole, who can give us true life. Oh, would you help us this day to submit ourselves, O oh Lord, to you. To your word in our lives. We thank you this morning for the wonder that is the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died so that we might have life and that we might have it abundant. We pray this all in His name.